Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey, everyone. Before we get started today, I just want to make sure everyone knows Lincoln Project Television, LPTV, returns next week, bigger, better, brighter than ever. Tuesday night, 8 p.m. Eastern, Tara Setmeyer and Rick Wilson will relaunch The Breakdown. And on Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern, Lisa Senecal and Maya May will be back with We're Speaking. And as always, you'll be able to find it on Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. Hope you'll tune in. And now, here's the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Aaron Dobson and Greg Jenkins, the co-executive directors of The Franklin Project. They are allied with us here at TLP, and their mission is to address the increasing imbalance of power between the government and the governed. Just for full disclosure for everybody out there in Radioland, I have known Greg and Aaron for about 20 years. They have known me since basically childhood. I can tell you guys that the first time I ever met Greg was on the snowy plains of West Des Moines, Iowa, where he got off a press bus for then the governor, George W. Bush, campaign for president, saw the mess, the enormous mess that I had created in a hotel lobby with the press charters check-in and looked down at me because Greg is a tall man and said, I don't know who you are. I don't know how this happened, but fix it. And he walked away. And there I was shaking in my 10 and a halfs, figuring out what in the hell I got myself into. And the, uh, the rest is history. So Aaron and Greg, welcome. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. So Greg, tell me a little bit about the Franklin Project, what the inspiration is, how it got started, and what you guys see as its core mission. Aaron and I have been talking over this sort of notion for a couple of years at this point. And what we concluded was, although there's a lot of work in the pro-democracy, anti-authoritarian space, what we feel is the key and missing ingredient is the level of citizenship participation that is required and built into how this country was founded in order to keep representative democracy alive and vibrant. And over the years, it's not just because of Trump. This has been a slow embrace of authoritarian impulses by a lot of people because they are easy answers to complicated questions and complicated issues. And over time, people have sort of relegated their responsibility and their role in democracy to their elected leaders. And over time, that imbalance of power has resulted in a dysfunctional and corroded leadership at the national level and at other levels as well. And so our goal is to get that missing component, which is the citizens, back involved. So, Aaron, you know, I think I remember growing up as a kid first. I mean, we had social studies in elementary school. We had civics in junior high. And then we had some variety of history, government, whatever it is we were going to call it. 
And then on Saturday mornings, we had Schoolhouse Rock. We had How a Bill Becomes a Law, Just a Bill on Capitol Hill, all this stuff that was sort of ingrained into us about, you know, at least how the government worked generally. But now we seem to have just taken all of that stuff out of the hands of teachers, the hands of students who will ultimately grow up to be adults and hopefully voters one day. So do you have any sense of how we fell so far in the civic education piece? Because it's my belief, and maybe we're seeing it play out, as Greg has noted, with the idea that it's almost impossible for a citizenry to participate in a system that it, A, doesn't understand, B, doesn't believe in, and C, is constantly telling you what is right or what is wrong or what you should or shouldn't believe based on who's in power? It's an intriguing question because what has happened over time is our civics infrastructure, for lack of a better term, has been functioning on kind of like a deferred maintenance plan. If you have a home or an apartment, there are certain things you have to do to keep up with it. And we've pretty much put all of that to a side, just waiting for time to catch up. And no more is that more obvious than in our education system. We've stopped teaching civics in the classroom decades ago. In fact, the years you were in school were probably the last years that it was even recognized as a class in the classroom. And we stopped teaching civics because it became punitive for teachers to do so because there was a feeling that to teach basic critical thinking in a civics curriculum was encouraging a culture war. So early on, we made this a polarizing endeavor. And we can see the outcome of that right now. And I think that's some of the things that Lincoln has focused on is highlighting that polarization that we've seen. And so, Greg, I mean, even when civics was taught on a regular basis, you talked about, you know, citizen participation. And even in a good year, right, I, I don't know what the percentage of turnout at the presidential level was last year, it probably didn't exceed 70 percent. In midterm elections at the federal level, maybe you get to 50. I worked on a campaign in Los Angeles County years ago where in the primary, I believe the turnout was 12 and a half percent. And so the further down the pecking order you go, the less people pay attention. Now, we do have a lot of elections. We have a lot of different elected things, right? I mean, in some states, you could have four or five elected officials surrounding you for any number of things. But, you know, in a lot of places, voting is not that hard anymore. I live in Utah. So we're an all-male state, shockingly enough, and one of the reddest states in the country. We only do mail-in balloting. If we already have pretty poor participation rates, how does the education piece of that solve that problem, or how do you hope it'll solve that problem? I think the way we're attacking this is poor voter turnout. Let's just say it's 50% of those who are eligible to vote do vote. That would be a nice number if that were even true. So if we reverse engineer your question a little bit, why is that poor level of participation so persistent. And we believe part of the problem is with the imbalance of power, the way that it is, the elected representatives, mostly in DC, are really only interested in citizens sending them money and voting every two or four years. Beyond that, there is very little interest in substantive citizen engagement from that perspective. So if you're just a regular registered voter, it would seem to you that the only pull on you is once every two years or every four years. And in between, there's not much interaction and there's not much engagement. And the elected leaders are perfectly happy with that state of affairs. So what we want to do is say, look, 
you have a responsibility as well as rights. That's how this country was founded. So we need to reacquaint everybody with that notion. Everybody races around saying, this is my right, that's my right, whether or not it actually is their right. But nobody really talks about the responsibilities that accompany those rights. And Ben Franklin was absolutely spot on when he was asked after the Constitutional Convention, what kind of government did you give us? And he said, half-jokingly, a republic if you can keep it, which was his sort of humorous way of saying, if you can keep it means it's not just up to the leaders, it's up to the people being led. You have to participate. So in order to up voter participation, we have to up their level of engagement, not just every two years or four years, but all during the year. And we want to make the point that it's really not that gigantic of a deal. We're not asking you to carve out hours of your day. We're not asking you to necessarily do anything more except get a little bit smarter about what your responsibilities are and learn how to have and have better, more productive conversations with your friends, with your community. And as a result, you'll be in a much better position when the candidate comes a knocking or your congressperson comes back for a district meeting to ask better follow-up questions and to be able to insist on better. A great example is, let's fast forward a little bit, a year or two, you've got a citizen who is now a little bit more engaged and has a stronger understanding of their role in society. And when a congressperson says, or a senator says, in answer to a question, yes, this is what I want to do. We want people to be better equipped to say, okay, that's fine. What doesn't get paid for as a result of that? Where's the money coming from? What are the downsides to this? As opposed to just listening to the talking points that are being spit out because they work. So far they've worked. <laughs> and then going on to the next question. Well, a couple of things. One, based on experience, it's really not every two or four years that candidates and parties care about voters. In my mind, most of the time, it's really the eight weeks before election day, <laughs> maybe longer if you're well-funded and you're in a position to basically lock down your election. But also, as you guys can probably attest, I don't know, other than the individual member of Congress, how unprepared to deal with actual human beings there are. Members of Congress, when confronted, regardless of what talking points they've been given, are rarely able to think outside that piece of paper they've been handed rarely have good answers to questions because they're so inexperienced at actually dealing with constituents that aren't the Boy Scout troop who came in from Arrow City or whatever, right, for a, a picture that you take and then they leave again. And so I think there's an opportunity here too, which is, especially with the advent of cell phones and social media and everything else, is that a member of Congress or an elected official who gives a bad answer or no answer to an important question is going to be held to account for that probably in a way they never could be before. But I think, Greg, to your point, somebody's got to be there to do that. So, Aaron, I want to get to you next. But before we do that, you guys released a couple of videos this week as part of your launch. So, Rob, why don't we play the first one? In moments of crisis, freedoms can be lost forever. The military swept away the government the people voted for. We always thought democracy was fragile. South America's poorest country is violently divided. Everywhere else. Demonstrators are demanding the military hand back power. But here. I've never seen anything like this. Freedom is a fragile thing, and it's never more than one generation away from extinction. Now, in this unprecedented time in American history, we can find a way to start listening to each other. One organization is empowering citizens 
let us begin anew, remembering on both sides that civility is not a sign of weakness. To preserve our democracy. America needs your help. This is an opportunity for us to rise above. Let's act. Let's inform. Our democracy requires an educated populace. Let's lead. It's not the extremist that is going to rule this country. We've all been convinced American democracy is something inevitable. Our democracy requires work, it requires reform, it requires renewed commitment. All of us are going to have to be a lot more involved than we ever expected to. Visit franklinproject.us to join the movement. So the voice that you hear there at the end is a woman named Ann Applebaum, who we've mentioned many times on this podcast and in the Lincoln Project, who is, I think, the seminal and singular tribune, I think, for what the authoritarian movement, not only in this country, but also across the world, means for all of us. And so The Twilight of Democracy is her latest book. I would highly recommend it. But Aaron, tell me about the democracy course. So Greg and I have talked a little bit about the problems. So now how does Franklin come in and start to provide some solutions? So the Democracy Corps is really at the heart of what the Franklin Project seeks to accomplish. And our goal is to directly engage with the members of the Democracy Corps and provide them with tools to build hyper-local approaches and conversations that key in on the values we share instead of the current focus on what divides us. So We'll do that by helping local citizens start democracy clubs, or juntos, as Ben Franklin called them. We want to provide tools that folks can have reasonable and civil conversations and amplify citizens and teachers that are already doing some of this work and their best practices. I mean, there's obviously a partnership component to the Democracy Corps and ways to engage citizens through already existing groups. But in all of this, the common feeling is that our democracy is worth fighting for. And I just want to go back to something that Greg spoke to, and that is conversation. And to us, civil conversation is one of the most important aspects that has been lost. It's the foundation of our democracy. And it is so important that we as citizens get back to a comfort level of being able to have difficult and complicated discussions in an unemotional way so that we can begin to focus on the values that we share instead of the issues that divide us. Greg, let me ask you this. So, I mean, we've got this democracy core. How do folks find out more about that? You know, it sounds like we're having conversations. We're doing community-based organizing. From y'all's perspective, what does success look like? Success is pretty simple, and it's going to take some time. Success is going to be people expecting better from themselves, people expecting better from their friends and their communities, and ultimately, people expecting and demanding better from those who wish to lead them so that we get better government. The imbalance of power is so severe that there is no incentive at the elected leader level to change anything. No incentive at all. We have dysfunctional government because the name of the game is getting power or keeping power. I mean, if you look at it, I mean, Reed, you know this as well as anybody, congresspeople and senators spend almost half of their time raising money in order to get themselves reelected or to get their colleagues in the same party reelected. And increasingly, they're spending the rest of their time bulldozing the other side of the aisle. So if you had a small business with 10 employees 
And for half the day, they were talking to their financial advisor, and the other half the day, they were bad-mouthing their employees. How much work is getting done? No work is getting done. So we are the ones who have this business called America, and the work is not getting done. And so what we want to do is give people a way to focus their frustration. Leaving the solution in the hands of those who are leading us is not going to happen. There's no incentive for them to change their ways. So we need to pick up our mantle and join the fight, which is what we're trying to do. You know, we all have a role to play in, in what we believe is truly a fight for democracy. And Reagan once said, you know, liberty's never a generation away from being lost. I think we now believe it's not more than the next election away. But how do you guys see it? Because we're not operating in a vacuum. As you all go out and try and provide substantive, nonpartisan, balanced information about how to be a better citizen, how to participate substantively in our political process and in our government, there's going to be a whole lot of people out there saying, it's all a rigged game. It's all bullshit. My side's right. Your side's wrong. Now we're in a place where folks want to say, well, how it is you work, how it is you live, how it is you believe is fundamentally against this, against America. So how do you see the Franklin Project playing in a place where on a daily basis, the people who are actively either in power, seek to be in power, are sharpening their metaphorical knives? Well, first of all, I'm not willing to concede defeat that we as American citizens are going to let that win. And maybe that's Pollyanna of me, but I truly believe that as we build a group of like-minded citizens that are made up of every political persuasion, race, location, economic background, something that's a tapestry of kind of the voices of America, then that's the reflection of our country that is in that middle. What we've fallen victim to is listening to the loudest voices in the room. And that's not most of America. So I think the hard work and the journey we have in front of us is to re-engage that silent group of people in the middle that's like, I'm done with this. We just have to get back to working together. So I think it's really important that we not totally let ourselves slide into this dark place that we can't rise above this, because I do truly believe that we can, which is why Greg and I think that the Franklin Project is so important to where we are right now. There's an interesting dynamic that Aaron touched on and that you brought up, Reed, which is if, if you're listening to the voices that appear to be controlling the discussions, they are voices on the extreme ends. Ask yourself, why are these extremes on the left and the right in crazy land on either side? Why are they successful in driving any kind of a narrative? It's the same dynamic that feeds how is it the parties decide who their nominees are. It's the activists that show up during the caucuses and the primaries. The vast majority of the people don't bother to get engaged until, well, frankly, it's too late. It's a binary choice. If you feel like you're part of a tribe, if you feel like you're part of the MAGA tribe, if you feel like you're part of the ultra-left wing or the ultra-right wing or whatever, there is a collective dynamic there that you touched on, Reed, that is really important. You feel like you're not alone. So if I feel like I'm not alone and I'm wearing my MAGA hat, whether or not I see another MAGA person for the rest of my days, I know that I'm part of something bigger than me and therefore can agitate for something at a kind of a collective perspective. So what we want to do is give everybody else in the country sort of their own identity, the democracy core, which allows them to assert a level of influence that they haven't been asked to exert before. Now, this is where it gets kind of tricky is when you get into particular policy positions and particular candidates, 
we are not advocating for any particular policy or against any particular policy, except to the degree that the policy is inherently anti-democratic or pro-authoritarian in nature. So one of the things that we're doing on our toolkit, on our website, is this thing called conversation starters. So what we want people to do is to peel away the onion of what's actually being said about a particular issue so that we can get to those things that we agree on and then build it back up again. So a great example is voting rights is obviously all over the news, Texas, Georgia, elsewhere. Now, all people are hearing to make their decisions are the talking points from both sides. There are some aspects of both sides' talking points that have truth to them, but there are also motives underlying those talking points that aren't really discussed. So what we want to encourage people to do in the Democracy Corps is take this issue, let's start from what we all agree on. Can we all possibly agree that it is a good idea for people who are allowed to vote to vote? It'll be hard to find someone who says no. Not as hard as you'd think. <laughs> well, yeah, probably. And then you get to what the Democrats are saying and what the Republicans are saying in any state. And then the next step is, well, let's peel that apart. What could the Democrats really be wanting and what could the Republicans really be wanting here? And how do you process that? You know, they say one thing, but they may actually want something else. This gets to what Aaron was talking about with the critical thinking. We want people to not just absorb what they're listening to and act on it, pick it apart find out what's really going on here and have those healthy conversations starting with what do we agree on? That's the baseline. And then go from there. Wherever you end up is fine. You know, we're not saying you need to end up pro or con anything. We're just saying the way you approach how you reach your decisions is really important to the Franklin Project. The Franklin Project is an idea and a value system. We're not going to tell people what to think or what side of an issue that they should be on. Our aim is just to get people to think and not just react emotionally. And I think that's some of what's been lost and where we've arrived today. So let me ask you guys this, because I know obviously as a 501c4, the Franklin Project is a nonpartisan organization. But when you talk about the concepts of democracy versus authoritarianism, and I know I'm adding a lot of my personal view here, is we're sort of politically stuck with one party who believes in democracy and another party who seems to be looking to jump overboard as quick as it can. And so when you see things like, as we record this, Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader in the House, Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, both said that they do not support a commission to investigate the insurrection of January 6th. That is fundamentally antithetical to democracy, which is if the citadel of the Republic was attacked and sacked, we should probably want to know why. So how do you explain that to somebody who feels left out, who feels politically homeless, is emotionally charged, but without a place to sort of send that energy in a way that is constructive and not just adding to the partisanship and the anger? I'm really glad you brought that up, Reed. Whenever an issue, a topical issue in particular, comes up, what people who are interested in these sorts of discussions immediately do is race to their corner of the boxing ring. What we want to do is tell people, you know, before you go racing to your Republican or Democratic talking points, before you go racing to what you're hearing on Fox or MSNBC, put yourself in a pre-partisan position. Before we are Republicans or Democrats, we're Americans. Can we at least start from that position? So if you start there, you may end up in the same place and that's fine. But if you start at the position where, okay, on this commission to examine what happened on January 6th, what we want people to do is to critically examine and to ask the questions, why would Republicans be against this? Like really pick it apart. Just don't immediately say, 
Republicans want the country to fail. They may. <laughs> but before you get to that conclusion, I think it's important for people to really pick apart these tricky questions. Voting rights is another one. What are the motives? What are people really going for? What are they saying as compared to what they really might be wanting here? I mean, I used to toil many years ago in the extreme right-wing think tank circles in DC during Clinton's first term. And I asked at one point, we we're doing all sorts of work trying to tear down Clinton healthcare and trying to look for boogeyman and the Vince Foster death and just all sorts of crazy stuff. And I said at one point, I asked my overlords, are we for anything ever? Or are we always just against stuff? And I got like a metaphorical pat on my head, silly boy, <laughs> said, the answer is we raise more money when we're against stuff. It's easier to raise money when it's easier to demonize the other side. So being against stuff serves those ends, if those are the ends that you want. So that's kind of what we're going for is, you know, before you leap to your talking point, before you say, well, Rachel Maddow said this or Brett Baer said this, we want people to stop and do a little bit of critical thinking about what could really be behind things and then get where you're going to get. That's fine. You know, Greg, as I mentioned at the top, you and I met working on then Governor George W. Bush's campaign. Aaron, I believe you and I met while I was in President Bush's White House. And I think you both also worked for President George H.W. Bush. And at least for us at Lincoln, we all have our own story about sort of the path to how we got to here, to this position in our lives politically. And so starting from that perspective, how do you guys find yourselves now? I don't know if you're Republicans or Democrats or independents. Frankly, I don't think it really matters. But how did you find yourselves now these years later in the democracy space? Aaron, I want to hear from you first and then we'll go to Greg. You know, it's interesting. I went to Washington for the first time back in 1986 and started out on Capitol Hill and had the, I think, distinct privilege of working for what was then truly moderate Republicans, Mickey Edwards. He was the first and only Republican congressman from the state of Oklahoma. And now it's all Republican and I think maybe one Democrat. Very different than Mickey. Yeah, very different philosophically than Mickey. I worked for Bill Brock, who, again, is another icon of public service and oftentimes was at crosshairs with Reagan when he was the head of the party. But they all held one true value, which was that we had to work towards a comedy, C-O-M-I-T-Y, not comedy. And that has been lost over the years. And having been witness to that you can work together and that you can achieve something, I'm probably a good representative of someone who is really active when they were young and then got so frustrated with everything. I kind of pieced out and went and worked in corporate America and ran communication shops and all of that. And then at a certain point went, who are we and what have we become? And that's why I find myself getting back active again now is because I don't have kids, but I certainly can't turn what we have now over to my friends' kids and, you know, my God kids. I can't stomach that. So to me, it's a call to action to everyone who is disengaged over the years. It's now time to man up or woman up and get back in the game. So and Greg, I mean, not to go back to our history one more time, but can you imagine a situation at a national Republican conclave now where a George H.W. Bush or a George W. Bush wouldn't be roundly booed off the stage? Can't imagine it. Can't imagine it. You know, one of the things about 
George W. Bush that attracted me. I was working in DC at the time when I got the call to go work on Governor Bush's campaign for president in 2000. The thing that really attracted me to him was at that point, the Republican Party hadn't gone off the rails. And he was very much, to use his phrase, a compassionate conservative, which was very appealing to me and very appealing to an awful lot of people. Where it started to get a little nerve-wracking for me was right after we got to the White House and Karl Rove, who I admire very much as a political tactician, started talking about what is it we need to do to form a permanent majority in D.C., Republicans permanently in charge of everything. That made me very nervous. Now, I understand the impulse. You know, if you've got a political philosophy and you want to be able to push through legislation that matches your political philosophy, you kind of need a majority to do it. But the state that we're in now with the Democrats controlling everything is every bit as dangerous as the Republicans controlling everything. One-party states are a very bad idea. Two-party states aren't much better, but they're at least some counterweight. And when you look at the current state of the Republican Party, to jettison Liz Cheney in favor of Stefanik tells you loud and clear that the only thing that matters is loyalty, fealty to one person, and not political philosophy because her conservative rating is much lower than Liz Cheney's was. You don't get any more rock-ribbed conservative than Liz Cheney. So clearly, she was jettisoned because she broke with party orthodoxy with regard to fealty to Trump. So from that perspective, the Republican Party is bankrupt as far as I'm concerned. It's not concerned with pushing a particular philosophical agenda in any kind of meaningful way. It's concerned with getting back into power. Well, and to use your story about the first couple of years of George W. Bush's first term, he was the first president in, at that point, nearly 70 years to pick up seats in his first midterm. As you said, there was this expression of this permanent conservative majority, which lasted exactly four years. So durable majorities in this country are few and far between. I mean, really not since probably 1995, right, when the Republicans retook the House for the first time in what was it, four decades or whatever it was. And, you know, we sort of the rest is history. It's sort of been the seesaw back and forth. And as we've seed and sawed, people have moved further and further to the edge of the boards, I guess, for lack of a better way to put it. And now every time one side goes up, it goes way up and the other side goes way down and it's not stable anymore. What you get are people running for office or running for reelection who do math. They say to themselves, what is it I need to say in order to get 50 plus one votes? Whatever that is, I'm going to say in order to get those votes. It's not about sticking by your principles. There, there was a time not that long ago when the Republican Party was called the party of ideas and the Democratic Party was called the party with no ideas. And so if you have no ideas, what do you do? You spend your time obstructing people with ideas. You know, clearly the Republican Party is out of gas and is going down a really bad road. You know, but to get back to your original question and to touch on kind of a personal note, the party started to drift away from what I had always believed it to be in representing my values in the early 2000s. But as a gay man in the reelection of President Bush in 2004 to push for a constitutional amendment banning gay marriage, I'm like, well, I haven't gone anywhere, but my party is driving itself to the edge of the cliff. I mean, it was a very Thelma and Louise moment for me. <laughs> it's like, I'm not in the car with you guys, so have at it. And with the ascendance of Trump, who, let's be clear, from my perspective, Trump is the lucky beneficiary of a slow embrace of authoritarian impulses. I don't give him intellectual credit for doing this on purpose. He just was the guy able to speak in simple sentences, make silly promises, and it appealed to an awful lot of people because it was very uncomplicated. 
And he effectively put his pedal on the gas and drove that car right off the cliff. So for a lot of us, I, maybe Aaron included, but certainly for a lot of people who identified as Republicans, they saw their party just disappear from them, is gone. So a lot of us have nowhere to go. It brings up an interesting point. I asked my mother, my 83-year-old mother, this last election cycle, who she was going to vote for. Lifelong Republican from Kansas, you know, has never voted anything other than Republican. And I asked her, you know, where her head was. And she goes, Erin, I didn't leave the Republican Party. It left me. And that was telling to me it's my same journey. The party left me behind. I didn't leave the party. Well, I think that's probably true. And it's certainly, I think, acutely true for people who considered themselves Republicans. I think in the last public survey, it was only 25 percent of respondents self-identified as Republicans. Democrats have seen, you know, a drop off, not nearly as significant, but, you know, the independent ranks are growing. But I always say in a country, in a society where you can order something on Amazon and literally anything, anything that humanity has ever created on Amazon and have it show up within 24 hours, maybe two parties is probably not really what the human mind is looking for. But before we get out of here, guys, please let us know, Greg, where everybody can find the Franklin Project and how they can get involved. Go to franklinproject.us is our website. Sign the pledge. We have a pledge with several components to it that sort of reemphasizes what we all have in common and begin to get involved. And Aaron, how about you? Anything you want to share before we get out of here? I just think it's very important that people get back into the habit of having constructive conversations and not be scared about it. We're trying to equip people with the tools to do that. So it's time to take those first steps and have some conversations. And lastly, where can we find you all on social media? Greg? I'm at Jenkins Greg on Twitter. And Aaron, where can we find the Franklin Project? Franklin Project is at Franklin, P-R-O-J-U-S, and I can be found at, at Aaron O. Dobson. All right. And as always, everybody, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Until the next time, thanks, everyone, for joining us. And we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our efforts to join our mailing list and subscribe to our newsletter, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode. Thank you.